Welcome to the latest edition of the MPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. Joining me today in the program is Lauren Bechtel, Council and a member of Mayor Brown's Project and Infrastructure Group, and J. Paul Forrester, a partner at Mayor Brown and an expert in project finance, among many other fields. And finally, NPM's East Coast reporter, Colt Shaw. Uh, welcome to the program, everyone. Hi. Thank you. So today we're discussing a rising asset for renewable development, offshore wind. Uh, to date, there have been 18 gigawatts of offshore wind projects awarded in the U.S. Uh, in the Mid-Atlantic and uh, New England and elsewhere. And that is exclusive of the four and a half uh, for, sorry, $4.6 billion raised in Boehm-led auctions for wind energy areas in New York Bight and the Carolinas, uh, both of which concluded this past spring. So with that in mind, Colt, I'll let you kick off the Q&A. Go for it. All right, Lauren, uh, I'll start with you. I, I just wanted you to see, I just wanted to see if you could just kind of jump into uh, what your background is um, in representing offshore clients. And if you remember any sort of turning point when you kind of realized that a, you know, a, a large offshore wind industry on the East Coast was sort of an uh, inevitability. Yeah, sure. So I started my career in the U.S. Solicitor's Office as an honors program attorney. And almost immediately, I was assisting with the Cape Wind litigation. So as a, a baby attorney, I was thrown into offshore wind right away. And throughout my time in the Solicitor's Office, I worked on, among other things, various aspects of the offshore wind program. Um, and then in 2018, I started as an attorney with the American Wind Energy Association, which is now known as American Clean Power Association. Um, a majority of my portfolio there was advocating for offshore wind energy development. Um, now I'm counsel in Mayor Brown's New York office, and we have a very robust global offshore wind practice um, in the U.S. alone, we represent developers, investors, and lenders in offshore wind projects that span Maine to North Carolina. So in terms of like the turning point for East Coast, and I thought it was inevitable, in December 2018, BOEM held a competitive auction in Massachusetts. I remember being with my AWEA colleagues and closely tracking the auction. Like we were afraid to leave our desks to get food or coffee because we didn't want to miss a thing. Even though the auction spanned multiple days, um, it ended up lasting 32 rounds over two days. And the winning bids were, if I'm remembering right, like I think 400 to 405 to $406 million. Um, and we were all blown away. And that's when I remember thinking offshore wind is going to be absolutely huge on the East Coast and something I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, almost four years later, we see the New York uh, bite auction with over $4 billion. Um, so, you know, catching up to speed now, I guess, what do you see as the uh, the largest risk facing the, the offshore industry, uh, specifically on the East Coast? So as more offshore wind leases are issued and more projects are coming online, the process is definitely becoming more complex. Um, so our clients, whether they're developers, investors, or lenders, are having more risk to consider before diving into the projects. Um, so these risks, I think, are some of the bigger risks such as pending litigation for other offshore wind actions and how they could potentially impact their project, the evolving regulatory landscapes, so you have changes with NEPA and ESA and nationwide permits, and how those, pro those changes could impact the project scope and timing, um, and the evolving BOEM leasing process. Um, like you guys have probably heard, BOEM's considering doing a programmatic EIS 
for the New York site area post-lease issuance um, that could be tiered to from construction operation plans. This all indicates that Bowen's offshore wind process is evolving. So I would say the biggest risk probably are litigation delay and the changing regulatory landscape. Gotcha. So uh, one thing that I, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but it seems like as the offshore wind industry is growing, um, onshore wind is slowly sort of uh, fading, at least in the United States. I was wondering what benefits you see in offshore wind um, that might be missing in traditional onshore wind farms or, or large scale PV solar farms. That's a good question. So I'd say offshore wind projects generate um, more energy because offshore wind speeds are typically faster and even small increases in wind speed can produce large increases in energy generation. Um, offshore wind speeds are usually more consistent than onshore. And then the last one that comes to mind are the offshore and turbine sizes are larger. So fewer turbines are needed to produce the same amount of energy as an offshore wind project. And as technology continues to evolve, the offshore turbines continue to get larger and larger um, and less and less of them are needed for the project. Gotcha. And uh, John, do you want to take it for, uh, from there yep. for the next few? Um, so Paul, we've had uh, one successful financial closing to date in the Vineyard Wind project. <clears throat> uh, approximately 2.39 billion was raised to support that project. Um, we're still in a, obviously a relatively nascent industry in the U S um, can you walk us through some of the challenges in structuring project finance deals uh, for, for offshore wind relative to both onshore and uh, solar PV projects? Thanks. In many respects, they're quite comparable. Um, and it's maybe a question of degree rather than real difference. But uh, offshore wind, obviously, as Lauren mentioned, is uh, something of a moving target. The regulatory scheme uh, continues to evolve. The leasing scheme continues to evolve. Uh, the various state programs which support offshore wind uh, differ. Um, and we're starting to see early signs of a little pushback on some of the cost and the related rate cases, which people are considering or integrated resource planning uh, that they're doing. So, and then last but not least, uh, transmission. Uh, you've got to take the offshore wind generated and bring it onshore. And we're certainly seeing a rise in local opposition and issues, uh, particularly where the point of interconnection uh, is on the, the state literal boundary. Um, but in other respects, again, it's uh, these are very large projects. There's a lot of money. Um, there are some fairly discrete issues. You've got Jones Act shipping requirements, which we may talk about later, uh, which you have to comply with or get, a, get waivers for. Um, and as Lauren mentioned, one of the significant issues is today you may not know what type of equipment you're actually financing. The sponsor shows up, puts a big check on the table, gets a, a lease, which, as Lauren reminds me, doesn't allow you to do anything but to continue to work on the project. And then by the time you actually show up with your plan and the project details, only at that point may you have identified the Equipment And again, as she noted, uh, equipment sizes are changing and changing rapidly. Uh, we were about to see our first uh, 14 megawatt turbine uh, in the water in Europe. So um, one would expect that to continue and make it difficult. And blenders, are, as you know, are reticent to finance unless they've got a lot of the details nailed down and uh, identified. And obviously for equipment like this, uh, you know, strong EPC contracts, which will ensure that they're actually available and in the ground. And uh, supply chain risks are front of mind for a lot of folks today in the United States, but they will continue to exist just particularly uh, because of the changing nature of some of the equipment. 
Well, it's an interesting question about technology um, because I'm sort of wondering if um, when we come to a point of inflection in the offshore wind development cycle, which again, you know, we have a chart on this. If you look anywhere from 25 to 27, let's just say there's supposed to be, um, you know, six, seven, eight projects, you know, simultaneously being built, whether developers will try and warehouse equipment uh, to get it financed that way, knowing that they, they have the, the equipment in tow, or is it still going to be the case of them, you know, being flexible and waiting around for technology like this to develop, which you referred to? I think more of the latter. I think there's strong support for uh, offshore wind from manufacturers today. Whether that changes over the period you're talking about is a really interesting question. But uh, today, there's very significant support. So the manufacturers are stepping up and making quite serious commitments to developers and sponsors about equipment. So today, I would answer the question, shouldn't be an issue or a problem. But again, that's just today. And over time, uh, particularly as we manufacturers see lenders more comfortable with their equipment, they'll presumably step back a little and then it'll become a bigger question and bigger issue. Uh, great. So in terms of the liquidity pool, um, you know, it's a term I often use and don't define it very well, but let's just say having covered um, infrastructure funds and private credit for a very long time, you know, we look at the world as being a, a pool of capital. It's grown larger for these type of investments, uh, for ESG friendly investments. Um, and, um, you know, these projects, as you referred to, are complicated, they're big, they're complex. Um, and, you know, as some of these projects start to get, um, you know, closer to, to construction phase, you know, they're going to come on, you know, somewhere in the cycle where there's interest rate hikes, you know, at some point there's interest rate hike now, there, there will be, you know, before the end of the year. Uh, bank debt will be expensive at some point again. Um, do you think it's going to apply to these deals or you think there's just enough interest um, everywhere, uh, foreign, domestic, private credit, where it's not such a big issue in, this, in that sense? Again, a very good question, and obviously a question I suspect on the minds of many sponsors and developers. Um, interest rates are obviously impossible to predict, and you're right. The general view is, though, they are going to be rising in the near term for some time, in the words of Chair Powell, until we get inflation under control, um, which could take a while. Um, I, I actually don't think these projects are terribly interest rate risk sensitive. I think the bigger issue, as you noted, is just the amount of capital. There are, I think, very solid and growing pools of capital available for these projects. Um, the large infrastructure debt sponsors will tell you uh, we like putting money to work in large amounts because it allows us to do all the due diligence that we would want to do. And we don't mind the fact that uh, it makes our portfolios a little lumpier and less diverse um, because, again, we have the opportunity to do the due diligence. So um, I, I'm not ex expecting or anticipating significant challenges with infrastructure finance for these projects. Um, okay. And the risk, I, I would note, interest rate risk is always hedged. It wouldn't matter if it was zero. You'd still be putting in place hedges. So the only question is, what are you what's it costing you to do uh, the hedge today? And it's probably a little more expensive, but not you know, unseemly so. Okay. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, so move, moving over to um, uh, alternative energy, um, green hydrogen. Um, it's always um, in the back burner of people's minds about the next step, the evolution of the renewable industry, developing intermittent resources. 
Um, we already talked about the uh, viability of offshore wind versus onshore winds to be able to generate more power. Is um, Where do you see green hydrogen coming into the story? Is it going to be, are we going to see it more in offshore wind than we will in some of these other projects? Or um, is it still going to be something that developers pursue across all sort of categories, if you will? Well, I think developers will always look for the optimal way to monetize their resource. I think that's pretty clear. And if green hydrogen is one way to do that, especially if we got electrolyzer costs down um, and it became more cost competitive, I think you could certainly see it uh, deployed. I actually think it's going to be a bigger deal for onshore wind, where we obviously have massive resources and known equipment producing energy at a known cost. So I think we could certainly see uh, green hydrogen redeployed as a use for all that surplus onshore wind energy rather than offshore. But to your question, intellectually, every developer would be looking at every option as the way to monetize and achieve the best value for their investment. Sure, And that may well include green hydrogen. It's got a lot of questions, which probably beyond the scope of today's call. But again, if it works out and we can, in fact, get those cost reductions in uh, electrolyzers and some of the equipment, um, sure, why not? Yeah, and I feel like the um, Apex Aries uh, hub that's being talked about now will go maybe go a ways to answer some of those questions since they uh, put their flag in the ground. Agreed. And and the DOE has obviously got some very yeah. significant funding commitments behind it. So I think we could certainly see uh, the cost reductions that would make it much more viable than it is today. But there's work to be done yet. Great. Uh, over to you, Colt. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, obviously, in terms of co-location, battery storage is typically associated with uh, you know solar projects. But um, recently, NYSERDA has uh, released its uh, draft solicitation documents um, for its upcoming offshore wind RFP, um, which includes some, quote, priority given to projects that are going to uh, connect to some sort of onshore uh, storage uh, project. And uh, uh, the New York Power Authority, um, on the heels of that, uh, has released its own RFP um, for projects to kind of sync up with that upcoming RFP. I was wondering um, sort of where you see uh, storage projects coming into this, and if you've seen other examples of of you know, the offshore wind industry uh, connecting to uh, battery storage projects uh, along the coast and sort of where you see that playing out. Yeah, it seems like storage is definitely a part of offshore now, especially because the states are incentivizing, like you were saying, in New York um, for the different proposals for the OREC solicitation to put energy storage as part of their proposals. Um, I don't think originally a lot of people would think offshore wind and storage together, but the different incentives have made it so that people are starting to think of them together, which is great. Um, recently, I haven't been hearing a lot about um, offshore wind and storage, um, just because a lot of what we've been working on has been the oxygen phases of New York, as well as North Carolina. Um, so I think as the projects continue down the development stage, we'll see more in terms of storage being coupled with these projects. I think it's something to really keep in mind and let's revisit at a future time as the projects are further along. Sounds good. And Paul, yeah, I if think- I might oh, supplement that answer just with two things. One, I, I, recent European experience would show coupling storage makes a lot of sense. In fact, offshore wind is now being used to balance the German grid I read today. Um, and then secondly, it is a way to demonstrate concrete local investment by putting storage uh, in, in where you bring the power in. Again, it, it makes sense for a lot of reasons. So I, like Lauren, I would not be surprised to see it evolve if it's not there today. 
Gotcha. And uh, for the next one, uh, Paul, you sort of touched on this earlier, but uh, do you think an expansion of the domestic manufacturing uh, industry for turbine components is necessary uh, to reach the the large goals that we're seeing at the state and federal level? Or do you think it's, you know, these goals are still, you know, reachable um, just with the current supply landscape? Uh, I, I, this is a personal view. I think more the latter. Um, I think that there is uh, certainly worldwide capacity to bring all this stuff online and put it in the, in the ground or water, depending on how you speak. Um, having said that, there's you know, no question that certainly the current administration favors a lot of built in America. So we're going to see those requirements in RFPs and in uh, financing commitments, particularly if the federal government is involved in supporting any of it. Um, and I would note that we're starting to quantify what that actually means. I saw a study for, I think it was New York, that uh, actually went into what was the difference between locally made American components versus offshore foreign source components. Um, and we're starting to quantify that difference now. So we'll be making some economic choices because the American source stuff today is more expensive than the foreign source uh, stuff. So. But it's it's a again. There's no question that politically, uh, you know, having it built here, made here, assembled here is all good, and clearly will help attract uh, federal money and satisfy some of the explicit requirements in RFPs, uh, which do include American-made requirements. Gotcha. Um, John, did you have any follow-ups? Did you uh, want to touch on anything else? No, I think uh, we've covered just about everything here. Um... So with that in mind, uh, Lauren, Paul, wanted to thank you guys for coming on the program. And uh, we hope you'll tune in next time. Uh, Burke out. Sure. And that is, uh, that's thank it, guys. Thank, thank you, you again for taking the time. Welcome. Appreciate it.